Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast, we're going to be taking a break from our series on the Gospel of John, and we're launching a new series for the next few weeks called Tribe, where we're looking at some of the uh, five of the distinctive core values that kind of define the vineyard movement. In this series, we will feature uh, a message this podcast for me, but in the coming weeks, uh, messages from other vineyard pastors in South Lu- Southeast Louisiana. So uh, it's going to be a fun time. I'll explain more about it in the message, but for now, let's head over to the talk, North Shore Vineyard Church in downtown Covington. Thanks for listening. But today, we're starting a new series here at North Shore Vineyard. We're going to take a break from the Gospel of John. Um, and we'll get back to it as we always do, uh, and and then in another two years we'll we'll be finished with it. <laughs> but uh, we're I'm excited because this is the first time we've ever tried anything like this, and and hopefully it works out. But uh, we're doing a series now for the next few weeks called Tribe, and uh, we got a slide for it. A cool tribe, yes, a cool slide. It's because I didn't make it. Um, this. This series is a, a series that came out of my relationships with other vineyard pastors in southeast Louisiana, and we get together every couple of months to uh, discuss church and theology and eat chicken wings and stuff, and um, we had this idea a, a few months ago that wouldn't it be cool if we did some kind of pulpit exchange series where each one of the pastors uh, from, from southeast Louisiana, we kind of just uh, would, would rotate around each other's churches and kind of, you know do some stuff with our churches together, you know, to kind of just show that, hey, you know, Vineyard is, is actually bigger than, than our church. And a lot of people don't realize that Vineyard's a, a movement that's been around for over 30 years now, and there's probably 600 or so churches in the United States, Vineyard churches, and another three or 400 overseas. So, uh, you know, when we planted this church uh, three and a half years ago, I wanted to be a vineyard. And partly it was because of the values of the vineyard. And so we decided as we decided to say, yeah, let's do this pulpit exchange thing. We were thinking of the topics and then we kind of landed on, why don't we talk about some vineyard values that that kind of define us as a movement, that kind of set us apart. Um, And so probably about two or three years ago, the National Vineyard Board kind of spent several months, actually probably a couple of years, wrestling through what are, what are a handful of the core values that, that set vineyard churches apart. It's not that other churches don't agree with these things, but these are kind of the main things we want to emphasize in all kinds of vineyard churches. There's a lot of diversity in vineyard churches, but these are the five things that you'll find uh, are, are kind of uh, distinctives of the vineyard church kind of distinctives of our tribe, so to speak. That's where we get the uh, title for today's message. But before I go on to that, I want to say this. Uh, we're going to talk about the distinctives of the Vineyard Church, but, you know, the thing that unites us with, with Christians of all colors, anybody who calls the na- upon the name of the Lord Jesus, is Jesus Christ. So uh, we're unified with Catholics, Pentecostals, Baptists, Mennonites, you know, you name it. Anybody who, who, who sees Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, we are unified with them because of Jesus, okay? So we have a unity with them. So this isn't, you know, as we talk about kind of our tribe, we're not, we're not like defining ourselves against others. I'm, I'm happy to, I've got tons of friends with whom I disagree doctrinally, but we're friends and we're united. We're brothers in Christ and sisters, brothers and 
you know, you know what I'm trying to say. Family, <laughs> uh, because of Jesus and not because of, of some of these beliefs and practices. So, so we may disagree with, with other people on how they work out their belief in Jesus. But if you believe in Jesus, hey, we're, we're family, okay? So I wanted to say that before we get started. Now, the interesting thing, the good news about this series for me is that I only have to do one message for the next month. And I just take it around to every church. The bad news is I only have to do one message for the next month. So if it's not good, so I'm hoping, I'm hoping this is an amazing, like this is the best message I've, I've ever done today. Uh, but uh, so next week we'll have one of the, I'm going to be in Baton Rouge at the Baton Rouge Vineyard. And then the, uh, I think that pastor's coming over here next week. And then we're going to have Pastor Phil uh, Johnson from the Kinder Vineyard is going to come over here and Brian Johnson. So it, it's going to be great. So, uh, and and the, the value that I'm going to be talking about today is the, the kind of vineyard value of reconciling community. And uh, I chose this one because it's, it's just really, it, it, it seems uh, really near to my heart and uh, I'm excited to look into that topic today. But before I do that, I want to kind of tell a story that I think a lot of people can probably relate to in some way here, whether you experienced it the way that I did or not. You know, probably the most awkward age in a person's life is, is somewhere between you know, 12 and 14 years old. Can I get an amen? You know, things are changing dramatically. You're starting to go through puberty. You've got you know, hormones, you, you, you're trying to figure out what you're, what you're good at, you got this kind of social awkwardness, you don't know how to talk to people very well, some of you, I'm not trying to slam any seventh graders in here, some of you are good at that, but, but a lot of people, it's a very weird age, and probably the most difficult thing about seventh grade in many people's lives is junior high school, right, I get an amen on that, um, and I want to tell you about my first day of junior high school. Uh, this was probably back in like 1986 or something. It was a long time ago, uh, many uh, years ago. But the first, first day of school for me was, was particularly awkward in seventh grade because I had just moved to a new town. My parents had gotten divorced when I was uh, at the end of my sixth grade year. And I moved with my dad from the town that I grew up, Midland, Texas, which was a decent-sized town, about 100,000 people, to this little podunk town called Breckenridge, Texas, which is somewhere between, say, Fort Worth and Abilene, Texas, for any of you uh, West Texas folks. Uh, the rest of y'all, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and so here I am in this new town. It's a small town of a couple of thousand people. I don't know anyone, and it's the first day of school uh, in junior high, and I was kind of a little bit anxious, like, it, how is this going to work out? Am I going to fit in with anybody? But in spite of my anxiety, I, I, I was confident because at least I knew I looked cool. <laughs> because see, back in Midland, Texas, where I grew up, I had several friends who were older than me by a couple of years, and, and one of my, my closest friends was a guy named Patrick, and Patrick was going into ninth grade when I was going into seventh grade, and Patrick was the, the guy that I looked up to for, for all things cool. Like, he would say, this is cool music, and I would just take his word for it, you know, whatever it was, cool. And one time, 
me and Patrick, we, we went on a trip with, with my mom up to Dallas, and we went to this, this big mall up there called the Galleria. And Patrick helped me, uh, you know, get all uh, dudded up in the latest fashions. And it, it, during that particular time in the history of America, fashions were greatly influenced by a certain television show called Miami Vice. <laughs> For those of you that aren't laughing, you, you weren't there. But um, the Miami Vice look, for, for those of you that are new to this thing, I'll, I'll explain it. It'll probably come back in another couple of years. Um, it starts with, with the white pants. And if you're really going to be cool, you, you tight roll them at the bottom. And then you'd wear a pastel shirt. And then you'd put a white blazer on top of that with some uh, Ray-Ban sunglasses. And then to, to finish the look off, you, no look was complete without deck shoes with, uh, that, that you could not wear with socks. You had to wear them barefooted. And so my friend Patrick, you know, gets me decked out in the latest styles, and I'm just like, you know, I'm going to be a chick magnet here. And we're walking around the Galleria in Dallas, and every step was painful. It felt like needles going into my... Uh, the, the heels of my feet because I had so many blisters from trying to pull this look off. So, uh, but it was okay because I look cool. And so, so here I was. And, and in Midland, Texas, you could actually get away with that look. For a town of 100,000, it was fairly progressive, you know. It, and so I just assumed that I look cool and I'm going to show up at this little junior high and they're going to, to see me for the, uh, you know, guy of fashion sense that I am, and uh, it's going to really help me get points with the local population. So even though I was anxious about going to school, at least I knew I looked cool. Now, I kind of remind myself at that age of, of some of these people you'd see on American Idol. You see these people sometimes that are really confident, but not so talented. Like, like they think they can sing. They, they've got business cards printed up and everything, and they just have no sense of self-awareness at all. Like, have you ever heard of yourself? <laughs> and I was kind of like that in seventh grade. Like, I, I really thought I was cool, but I just had no kind of self-awareness whatsoever. So I had kind of this, this confidence that wasn't based on reality. And um, so I show up at the first day of school expecting things to go well, and um, kind of the opposite happened. Um, it was as if I had landed in a spaceship on the campus. Uh, I walked in, and everybody just looked at me like I was from another planet. I mean, it, was, uh, it, it wasn't going so well. And, and, and you pair that with the fact that somehow growing up in West Texas, I didn't catch the accent the way that many uh, other people did. So not only did people think I looked funny, but I, I, they, they would also say, you talk funny. And um, so the, the, that's how the day got started off for me in junior high. But then came probably the most, most angst-ridden part of the day, the seventh grade cafeteria. That's the worst, right? And so I go into the cafeteria, and it was kind of like that scene from Forrest Gump when he's going on the bus, you know, <laughs> seat's taken. <laughs> uh, 
I'm walking through, I'm walking past the jocks table, walking past, you know, the cheerleaders table, the cowboys table, uh, all the various groups, and finally I find a, a table tucked away in the corner of the room where nobody's sitting, and, and that becomes my table. <laughs> and I sit down, and, and, and it, it wasn't my table only, because uh, bit by bit, everybody else who didn't fit in with anybody else uh, came and joined us, and, and that ended up becoming... Uh, our table. <laughs> it was kind of like the, the island of misfit toys. That was us. You know, we were, <laughs> we didn't have a whole lot going, but we had each other. And um, so it was an interesting collection of outcasts and nerds and, uh, you know, folks that didn't feel in. That was back when nerds were actually nerds. I know it's kind of cool now. Um, but there's something about junior high that, that, that the, cafeteria, that even junior high kids have, have, have stumbled upon uh, kind of a universal idea that is, that is prevalent in all human beings, that when you let someone sit down at your table, you're saying that you accept them. When you choose to break bread with somebody at your table, you're saying, welcome to our group. We've extended hospitality to you, or, you know, you're not breaking bread, but chicken nuggets or whatever it is. Uh, uh, my son's school, it's macaroni wiggle. Um, but when you allow someone to sit at your table, you are saying you are welcome into my life. That's why junior high is so brutal is because there's so many people that don't actually extend that hospitality to others. The school... The school lunchroom is kind of a picture of what we experience throughout life. In fact, it's been one of the, uh, one of the battlegrounds that we've seen even in, the, in, in things like the civil rights movement. You know, back in 1968, February 1968, there began what became known as the lunch counter sit-ins. It, it, it happened in uh, uh, Greensboro, North, North Carolina, when five young black men walked into the Woolworths department store, and they... they went up to the lunch counter that had previously only served white people, and they asked to be served. It didn't go over so well because the lunch counter letting black people sit there was, was somehow saying, we accept you, that, that you can be a part. It didn't go over well with the establishment, but they kept coming back day after day. And then the lunch counter sit-ins began to spread from North Carolina all over the United States, and then within six months, that those lunch counters had become such a battleground that, that it began to overthrow the seg segregationist policies of many stores and even the country. Who you sit down to eat with says something about who you accept, who you love, who you welcome into your life. People who will allow you at their table are people who accept you, who welcome you uh, as you are. Now this... This battleground of the table, it actually goes all the way back to the early church. Do you realize one of the biggest, a lot of people don't realize this, one of the biggest battlegrounds in the early church was who gets to sit at the table. You realize that? I mean, that was actually a big deal. Paul, I love this, uh, in Galatians 2, uh, Paul recounts a story of, of how he, as the freshman apostle, 
We, we look at Paul and we kind of think he wrote half the Bible. He must have been highly esteemed by everybody. But the truth is, Paul, when, when Peter and John and James were hanging out with Jesus, and even when they were starting the early church, Paul was persecuting them. You know what I mean? He was killing people in the name of God. And Paul didn't actually become a, an apostle till somewhere like 15 years after his conversion. So this is many years after the church uh, got started. And Paul recounts this story of how he is the, the freshman apostle uh, had to rebuke Peter, the rock, the foundation of the church. Galatians 2.11. When Cephas, that's a fancy name for Peter, came to Antioch, Paul's saying this, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You were a Jew, yet... You live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So here it is. Paul had planted these churches among Gentile people. Now, in the early days of the church, when it first started out in Jerusalem, most of the people who were Christians, they didn't call themselves Christians. They called themselves Jews because they were Jews, both ethnically and, and, and even uh, religiously. They followed the Old Testament law. Now Jesus was their Messiah, but they kept following things like circumcision and dietary laws and stuff like that. Paul, on the other hand, though, goes off and he feels called to plant churches in, in pagan places where there's Gentiles, people who didn't grow up going to uh, the temple, who didn't observe Jewish customs. They didn't even know the story. And so Paul would go into an area like Galatia or Ephesus or Philippi, or Corinth, and he would plant a church. And here's how Paul would do it. Jesus is the Messiah. There's a new day dawning. His kingdom is coming. Turn away from, from, from the ways of this world and follow Jesus. Pretty easy stuff. Love God, love people, enjoy your, your, your fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Paul would plant these churches very simply, but in many of these churches, he would be there for a couple of months, sometimes a year or two years, but then Paul would go off to plant other churches. But when Paul was gone, people would often come from, from, from uh, Jerusalem, Judaizers, who would come behind Paul, and they would show up at a place, and they'd say, great that you love Jesus, but if you really want to please God, if you really want God's favor, then you need to get circumcised. You need to stop eating pork chops and bacon. You need to... Uh, keep Sabbath, you need to follow all these Old Testament rules. It's Jesus plus. Jesus is good, but if you really want to make God happy, do these other things. And Paul comes back to many of his churches and he can't, like, like what he tells Galatia, how did you start off in the spirit? I introduced you to the simplicity of Jesus Christ. How could you start in the spirit and end up in the flesh? Because when Paul would show back up on the scene, there were all kinds of divisions. There were people who were getting all proud because now they were following the Old Testament law and they were breaking up into schisms like a junior high uh, cafeteria. And Paul starts off his letter to the Galatians talking about, look, I'm not afraid to even confront the main apostle, the rock, Peter, and call him a hypocrite to his face in front of everybody. I just imagine being in that scene like, 
He did not just do that. Peter just confronted the rock. But Paul goes on to develop this idea in the next chapter. He says in Galatians 3, 26 through 29, some of the most revolutionary words of the New Testament. So in Christ Jesus, you were all baptized children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. These words, we might just kind of read them today and go, ah, that's cool. But these are revolutionary words. Jesus is upending the whole social order of the world at this time. He says, in Christ... The things that once divided people in this world are made secondary or made irrelevant altogether. Now Jesus becomes the primary identifier. So before the coming of Jesus, you could separate into Jews and Gentiles. And Paul's saying, in Jesus, there ain't no such separation. It doesn't matter if you were born a Jew. That doesn't give you any privileges now. The privileges come from being united with Christ. And the good news is it doesn't matter if you were born a Gentile because now you can get in on the promises of Abraham and Jesus. That was revolutionary to them. That was, that's why it was so hard for Peter to sit down and eat with Gentiles in front of other Jews because it was, it was crazy, crazy talk. But not only that, he, he goes on to the next thing. He says, in Christ there's neither slave nor free. You know, in that time in the world, slavery was allowed all over the world. All civilizations. Slave, slavery was a common institution. And Paul, you know, in that world, if you were a slave, you didn't have any rights. You didn't get to vote. You didn't get to own property. You were basically a slave until you repaid your debt sometimes, or maybe you would be a slave for the rest of your life. And Paul is saying, in Jesus Christ, everyone gets to come to the table. In Jesus Christ, slaves... Are, are elevated to, a, to the same status of, of, of people who got money and couldn't have slaves. In Jesus Christ, there's, there's no difference between slave people and free people. They're all brothers and sisters. Do you realize how radical that was back then? Nobody was saying that kind of stuff. It wasn't like there were abolitionists back then saying, in slavery. Paul is saying, in Jesus Christ, there's, there's, there's no such thing. And then Paul ratchets it up even further. He says, and in Christ, there's neither uh, male nor female. See, in that, the world at that time, if you were a woman, uh, you didn't have a whole lot of options. Your options were get married, have kids. And, and that's it. There wasn't like, I think I'm going to go to school and get a degree or something like that. Uh, or go into business. There was nothing like that. Women were not educated. They weren't allowed to be educated. They they were just at home, and that, that was their lot in life. And that's why it was so bad if you were a woman and you couldn't have kids because your husband would divorce you and you'd end up homeless if you didn't have anybody. That's why when the early church begins taking care of widows, it was crucial because these widows, if you didn't have a man in your life, you were going to be on the streets. And Paul is saying, in our world, outside the church, there are divisions between male and female. They're treated differently. Uh, women don't have any rights. They, they, they're second-class citizens. But he says, in Christ, those divisions become separate. 
In Christ, men, women, Jews, Greeks, slave, free, we are all on equal footing. We all get to sit at the table of Jesus. That's good news now. Don't all shout me down at once. Now, this idea that Paul introduces, it's actually something he got from Jesus. When we look at the earthly ministry of Jesus, Jesus had a, had a, a habit of eating with the wrong kinds of people. Sharing the t- you know, he, he had the habit of going through the, the cafeteria and finding the, the, the table of misfit toys <laughs> and sitting down with them. Like Jesus wasn't going to eat with the popular kids. He was going to eat with the kids that nobody hung out with, the losers, the freaks, the geeks, whatever. Jesus was keeping table with them. I love this in Matthew 9. Jesus calls Matthew, who's a tax collector. Tax collectors were the lowest of the low. They were despised by the Jewish people. They were just seen as corrupt, uh, much worse than we see, you know, tax collectors in our day. I mean, they, they just, they hated them. And Jesus calls Matthew, a tax collector, into his inner circle. Come be one of my disciples. And what is Matthew's first inclination to do? to throw a party and invite all his sinner tax collector friends to get around Jesus. Isn't that crazy? Like, Matthew sees that if, if this Jesus will let me in, wow, he'd probably, he'd probably love on some of my friends. What's worse is that, uh, what's worse, what's even better, <laughs> depending on where you are, uh, Matthew 11, uh, a couple of chapters later, says, John, uh, oh, Matthew 9, I forgot to read this. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why are you eating at that table? <laughs> Shouldn't you be hanging out over here with the cool kids? Matthew 11 says this, John, came neither, uh, John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. So, so get this, Jesus wasn't just showing up at a party and kind of standing off to the side, Right? I think sometimes we have this idea like Jesus is always just kind of walking on clouds and, you know, just always serious and, you know, I'll show up at your party, but I'm not going to partake of anything. I'm just going to, I'm Jesus. I'm just, you know, I don't want to, don't want to get my hands messed up. You know, I, I can't, I can't be too near any of this sin stuff because, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll mess up my holiness or something. But it says in Matthew 11, like people were accusing him of being a glutton and a drunkard. I hear voices in the air. Serial. <laughs> Matthew was accused, I mean, Jesus was accused of being a drunk and a glutton. That, that goes to tell me that, number one, Jesus was like up in the middle of the party. He was right there with people. Right in the middle of what they were doing. Right there at the middle of the table. And it goes to show me that he probably did this not on one occasion, but multiple times. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus was a drunk, but he got a reputation of being around so many people who were partying that, that people, that was the only thing they could level him. Well, he's just, he's just a glutton and a drunk. No, Jesus wasn't afraid or intimidated by anybody. 
He would keep table with, with prostitutes, with tax collectors, with fishermen, and even with his enemies. You realize that Jesus even opened up his table to people who hated him. And he still broke bread with them. Actually, the final night when Jesus, right before the cross, when Jesus has communion, he's got an enemy at the table, and he breaks bread with them. That's the kind of God we serve. See, in the, in the vineyard, one of, the, one of the, the guy who kind of started the vineyard, John Wimber, one of the things he was big on for, for many years before he passed away was the idea that when we pray for sick people to be healed and they get healed, it's a sign of the kingdom of God breaking in. Uh, when you, you know, because you see this with Jesus often. Jesus preaches the kingdom of God. He prays for sick people. They're healed. And it's a demonstration that the kingdom of God has come. And I believe that. And that's why we pray for people to be healed. And when we see people healed, we believe that's a sign of the kingdom. But you know what? As much as that is a sign of the kingdom, I believe a reconciled community of people is as much a sign of the kingdom and the power of God as healing. When you see a group of people that wouldn't otherwise hang out together, rich people, poor people, black people, white people, people of different uh, uh, occupations, different statuses in the community, uh, when you see a group of people who wouldn't otherwise gather together and they're gathered together around the person of Jesus, that is a sign that there's a new king in town. That's a sign of the kingdom of God. But when we see the absence of this, it's also a sign that people are not living under the lordship of Christ. I have been reading some uh, critiques of American Christianity from the 1800s and uh, written by former slaves. And they are exposing the hypocrisy of the American church. I want to read something from uh, Frederick Douglass who... Uh, was an ex-slave, a brilliant orator and writer. When he looked at the church of the 1800s in America, the established religion of that time, he said this, The church of this country is not only indifferent to the wrongs of the slave, it actually takes sides with the oppressors. It is a religion which favors the rich against the poor, which exalts the proud above the humble, which divides mankind into two classes, tyrants, tyrants and slaves, which says to the man in chains, stay there, and to the oppressor, oppress on. It is a religion that may be professed and enjoyed by all the robbers and enslavers of mankind. It makes God a respecter of persons, denies his fatherhood of the race, and tramples in the dust the great truth of the brotherhood of man. All this we affirm to be true of the popular church and the popular worship of our land and nation, a religion, a church, and a worship which on the authority of inspired wisdom we pronounce to be an abomination in the sight of God. Wow. See, what Frederick Douglass was seeing, he said, you know, I see all these people in America that just go to church, but they won't let anybody that doesn't look like them in the church. And they preach a gospel that divides people, that oppresses people, that keeps half the people of the population down and exalts the proud over the humble. He's like, you can say that this is Christianity, but it, it looks nothing like Jesus Christ. It looks nothing like the God who, who, who ate with tax collectors and sinners and fishermen and anybody who was an outcast. It looks nothing like him. 
call it Christian all day long, you're missing the point. Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite authors, wrote this in a book called The Contemplative Pastor. He says, Jesus is the way as well as the truth. The way the gospel is conveyed is as much a part of the kingdom as the truth presented. Why are pastors expert on truth, experts on truth and dropouts on the way? Eugene Peterson is saying, it's not enough to have a seminary degree. It's not enough to have knowledge of the Bible where you can spout off chapter and verse and you can argue with anybody the fine points of theology. It's not enough. If you are not responding in the way of Christ, then all the truth you know means nothing. Need I remind us that the Pharisees were experts in the Bible and they missed God right in front of their face? I think the church in America these days, maybe slavery has, we, we, we got that issue figured out, thank God. But you know, there are plenty of things in our culture where the church has sided itself so much with politics, with causes, with anything other than Jesus that, that people now, when they look at the church, people who are outside the church, you know, when they're polled, what do you think of when you think of the church? 80% of the people outside of the church, when they're polled, say that the, the first words that they say about the church is words that speak of the things that the church in America is against. Maybe we have come away since the, the, the slavery that, that the Christians justified in this country 150 years ago. We've come away maybe, but we are still siding ourselves as the church with so many of the divisive issues in this world that we are alienated alienating large groups of people because we are continuing to further the powers and principalities in this world that seek to divide humanity. God has called us to be a reconciling community, a group of people who don't tolerate that stuff in the church or outside the church. The Apostle John wrote, the words of Jesus. They will know you are my disciples by your big church buildings. <laughs> they will know you are my disciples by the way you can articulate your doctrine. They will know you are my disciples by your stance on social issues of the day. They will know you are my disciples by your big houses and fancy cars. They will know you are my disciples by your Christian t-shirts and bumper stickers. <laughs> They'll know you're my disciples because you only listen to Christian radio. Thank God he didn't say any of that. <laughs> they will know you are my disciples by the way you guys love one another. I am convinced to this day... Uh, I've almost given up on evangelical Christianity in, in America because I think there's such a disconnect from things that are said. And I, that's, that's what I've grown up in. There's such a disconnect from things that are said with the way that people live their lives. I am convinced that the biggest evangelical tool that the church has is to love one another. Because I think when, when a group of people start actually loving one another... When a group of people actually start loving one another and start loving the outsiders, the people that sit at the, the table that nobody wants to sit, when the church actually starts doing that, 
people are going to want what we've got because it shows that we're not, we're not playing the same old game of politics and religion that, that the world has seen through the ages. We're living under a different king. His name's Jesus, and he ain't no re respecter of persons. He loves all with un an unconditional love. He extends a, a, an open hand to anybody, whether sinner or saint, Republican or Democrat, rich, poor, no matter where you're at. When the world begins to see that, they're going to be breaking down our doors to get around our king. I think a lot of times that the tension, as, as, uh, as one guy, uh, a vineyard pastor, says, the tension that we have as Christians is between the exclusive claims of Christ and the inclusive love of Christ. I think so often we, we feel like if we believe the exclusive claims that Jesus Christ is the Lord and there's no way to the Father but through Him, then, then somehow we have to separate ourselves from anybody else who, who doesn't agree with that or else we will, their darkness will overcome us or something or we'll get tainted or, or you know, we'll become unholy. We almost walk around thinking that, that, that this, this revelation that Jesus Christ is the only way, like, like we, if, if we truly believe that and we get around people who are of a different religion or, or who are into some bad things, then it, it's going to look like we're just, uh, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, compromising. compromising. It looks like we are uh, actually advocating what they're doing. Endorsing. Endorsing. Thank you. It's like a game show here. <laughs> what is... Uh, we, we, I think sometimes we feel like if we get around people who we disagree with, who aren't followers of Christ, then it's going to look like we're endorsing what they're into. But let's look at Jesus. Jesus didn't compromise his truth as the exclusive way to God by getting around adulterers, tax collectors, all kinds of people who were messed up in sin. He just went in and just broke bread with them, sat down, entered into their world. We have the ministry as the church, the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21 said this, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as through, though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have the ministry of reconciliation. What does this mean? I'll close by saying this. It means in the church that we don't tolerate divisions. We don't tolerate, tolerate the divisions of this world. We don't bring that stuff into church. You might, be, uh, you might be really rich and powerful and famous out in the world, but when you come here, you got the same place as the guy who, who, who's a bum who just walked in off the streets. Outside these doors... You may have people who look down on you. They don't want to have a thing to do with you. But in here, you're a child of God who's been reconciled to God. 
So in the church, we don't tolerate that stuff. My hope is that, 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 that this church becomes more and more diverse with people from different backgrounds, different you know, races, everything. Because I think it's a picture of the world of what, the, what, what it's going to look like in heaven. The second thing is when we, when we live in, in the surrounding culture and society, we do it as ambassadors of Christ. We, we don't tolerate the divisions of the world. So I might have certain beliefs on politics, but I, I, I tell you what, I'm not going to divide with people on politics. I mean, there's certain things I think about government. Yeah, I've got my own views. It's okay to have that, but I'm not going to get into a club. I'm not going to, to baptize a club in the name of Jesus and say, this is what Jesus, I'll, I'll say, you know, this may be uh, my personal input. but <laughs> As Christians, we step into the midst of the world and we become peacemakers. We stand in the divisions of this world and, and, and we hold people's hands. You know what Jesus said? He said, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. You know, when we forsake the divisions of this world and start living a different way, guess what? People are going to say, you look like you're related to God. <laughs> You'll be called children of God. You bear a resemblance to your Father in heaven who's no respecter of persons, who causes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust, whose mercy is without end, whose love is without partiality. You remind me of him. That's what the world needs now. Everything in our world is pushing us to divide, especially Facebook. My goodness. <laughs> and what's worse is so many Christians choose their ways to divide the world and they throw scripture verses on top of it. You can play that game or you can stand in the midst of people who aren't like you, who are different. And just sit down with them. Be a peacemaker. I got to tell you, in my own life, this is scary. Um, because sometimes I feel like God's calling me to sit down with people that I wouldn't normally hang out with. But I tell you, when I, when I go ahead and do that and get over my fear, just walk down and sit at the table with them, I find God in the midst. I find that God's right there. It's amazing since we've been here in downtown Covington. I, you know, I play music and on the other side of this wall at that bar sometimes. I play a couple blocks from here. And I found just in playing music, just in serving people, I'm not going in as Pastor Crispin, uh, just going in as a regular guy who plays some music. Hopefully I can brighten your evening a little. Uh, but I found in the times before a gig when I just get to sit down with waiters, bartenders, people who are just hanging out, and I just listen to them, I find God's there. And you know what? I'm not preaching anything. I hadn't shared scripture with anybody. But I find that in just loving people, uh, it, it's a powerful thing. And you know what? I've seen so many of these people that I'm just, I don't think I'm doing anything with. You know, I'm just, I'm just being a friend to. So many of them are, are coming up to me lately. Can you pray for me? Can you, can you help me with this? People don't want to know your answers. They want to know that, that they're accepted. They want to know that they're loved, no matter how different from you they might be. I want to close today. I'll get the band. Oh, we, we went long. We've got another church coming here in a minute. Uh, get uh, the worship team up here. We'll, we'll close this way. I think there's no better place to, to close a service about reconciling community than at the table.
by taking the Lord's Supper together. So this morning I'm going to invite uh, Al and Judy up here. They're going to lead us in communion. And uh, the way we're doing this, if it's your first time here, you just break off a piece of bread and dip it in the cup. And uh, as the band leads us in a worship song. And as we come up, I want you to ask this question. Number one, where is there maybe a disconnect in your own life between what you believe and what you practice. Those words of Frederick Douglass uh, against the American church, if people look at your life, is there a disconnect between what you say and how you live like Jesus? The second question is, where is God inviting you today to extend hospitality, hospitality to some other people that are different from you? Ask the Lord, God, where are you inviting me to extend hospitality to some people that aren't like me, to some people that may disagree with me, to some people that may be doing things I disagree with. Where are you inviting me to sit at the table? As the band plays, why don't you come up and, and uh, I'll close this in a word of prayer after communion. You can sing along with the song if you'd like. Otherwise, make your way up.